Welcome to Two Pats in a Podcast. I'm your host, Patrick. And I'm the other Patrick. And this is episode five. We're going to talk about our cameras. Yay. We've we've both had digital cameras for quite a long time. Uh, and we we both uh, we both enjoy taking photos quite a lot. That's true. I think that's an understatement for me. Well, only if you go by the number of digital cameras I have. I think for me, if you go by the size of my photo library, which I think has crossed the 500 gigabytes mark now, I think I have a problem too. Where, sh- where should we start? Um, why don't we start with the first digital camera you've owned? So the very first digital camera I used but didn't own was something sub-megapixel connected via the parallel port of all things. Wow. And I don't know what its brand was. I borrowed it from a grandparent of all things. Ah. And unfortunately, I don't have any of the photos I took with it. Oh, that's a shame. But slight digression. So the first digital camera I actually bought was the Fujipix S3000. And I bought that in, I think, February 2004. Mm-hmm. So 13 years now of digital wow. cameras. It was four megapixels. And I shot with a 128 meg card. Wow. Is it SD or compact flash? No, it was the the weird format that Fuji and... Oh, Olympus. the X- XD? XD, yeah. that's it. Yes, it was It was much closer in size, really, to the micro SD cards that we ended up, I think. Mm. And unfortunately, it was the only device I've ever owned that had, had that format. And fortunately, I didn't invest in too many cards, which was easy because they were really expensive back then. Yeah, well, I think megabyte for megabyte, it was more expensive than the SD and MMC versions. But that that camera was totally what got me interested in carrying something that could take photos every day. It used AA batteries, um, which was good and bad because it, it burned through them. And this, even though the card wasn't very big, it was still only 30 or 40 photos or something. Okay. And so... I took that camera with me when I went to Yosemite for the first time. And I remember sitting on the tour bus with my laptop, like at, at, in the middle of the day, copying photos off my camera so that I could take more photos in the afternoon. <laughs> Do you know what the specs of the lens are? Is it a zoom? It was a zoom, but it was, I mean, it was effectively a point and it was a point and shoot. It mm-hmm. didn't have interchangeable lenses. It didn't support roar. It was almost entirely automatic. How big was it? It was quite a chunky camera. Okay. So it did have zoom. I just don't remember how good it was. Uh, the photos that uh, that I took with it, I still have those in my photo library. That's how I know the model and when I bought it. And it, the photos are obviously a lower megapixel than my newer ones, and thus you can't zoom in very far Mm -hmm. but they still look okay what was your your first digital camera well since i'm a little bit older than you my first camera was an apetech pen cam trio 2 the second edition Um, so what made it trio 
was because it could be a digital stills camera. It is a digital video camera, barely, and it's a webcam. Basically, it was a glorified webcam which you could attach batteries to. It had maximum resolution of VGA, <laughs> and it had、um, volatile memory. It only had space for twenty six images, twenty six VGA images. I think it had sixty four. QVGA. I didn't even bother with the video, but it had a fixed lens, fixed focus. It had a little plastic viewfinder so that you can actually try and frame your shot. There's no, there's no display that、uh, gives you live view. There's only a crappy LCD which literally just showed two numbers, the two digits for、um, how many shots you had left. And because it had volatile memory, the annoying thing was if you dropped it and the batteries fell out, you lost your pictures. Oh no! And it connected via USB, but it used a USB A connector. Oh wow! Yeah, so that was that was old school. In terms of size, it wasn't too bad. It was about the size of a chocolate bar. It's a it. I guess from the name PenCam, you can kind of tell that it's. Very long and thin, not that thin, but yeah, chocolate bar sized. It took two AAA batteries, and yeah, I had. I don't remember exactly when I had it. I was still in uni, so I'm guessing it was right, possibly before two thousand, the year two thousand. So I'm guessing nineteen ninety eight to nineteen ninety nine. The the use of the USB A connector. I think hints at that time frame as well. Yeah, that that actually reminds me the the lack of a viewfinder reminds me of something that was kind of cool about the S three thousand, and that was that it had a an electronic display, but it had an electronic viewfinder as well. It was similar in quality to a viewfinder on a video camera, so not not great,、yeah. but、uh, it was one of the few point and shoots that had that. And I remember, kind of coming from traditional cameras, I'd used film cameras before. The idea of holding the camera out and looking at the back was really weird to me. And with that camera, I could look through the little electronic viewfinder. That's really cool. And so it felt like a real camera. I remember for the first couple of iterations, I think a lot of digital cameras had the look-through viewfinder. Like not connected to the lens, really. Like a non DSLR point and shoot film camera. Yeah, I think there's a word for range it. Rangefinder. Rangefinder. Yeah, and I think that was less to do with the benefits of having a rangefinder style method for composing your shot, and more because the LCD just chewed up the batteries. Oh yeah, and basically. That that was it, and live view was pretty terrible anyway. I think back then it possibly showed you some exposure preview, but it was low res. It was very spotty, and there was probably a lot of lag. After the S three thousand, I I ended up in a, a shop in New Zealand called Noliming, and they happened to have a 
an interest-free deal, and I was weak, and I walked out with a Nikon D50. Oh, wow, so you jumped straight to the DSLR from that. Yeah, and the D50 I got came with a... The D50 I got came with an 18 to 55 and a 70 to 300 mil lens. And so I, I, yeah, I went from this four megapixel point and shoot to a six megapixel Nikon DSLR. And the D50 was definitely the, the entry level model at the time. Uh, it was one of the last ones to still have a motor in the body for autofocus. So it could still use all the older, uh, autofocus lenses. Yep. And and like the as I eventually got the wonderfully cheap fifty mil f one point eight, which didn't doesn't work on any newer Nikon's, unfortunately. None of the entry level Nikon's, the the more expensive Nikon's, all still had the built in motor oh, okay. as well. That's cool. I yeah, it was it was unique. I think in that it was an entry level one. Yep. that could do it. And they not very long, maybe a year or so later, released the D40, which was definitely a step up in a bunch of ways, but also a step down in ways like no longer having that motor. Mm-hmm. But that camera was what got me into shooting RAW because its metering was terrible. <laughs> uh, and so, actually, I mean, RAW gave me the ability to recover and shooting in manual was just what I did with that camera because... It, it would say, this is going to be too dark. And I'd be like, oh, okay. Take the photo and it would be way overexposed or vice versa. Mm-hmm. Uh, it obviously didn't have live view because that's relatively recent. How big was the rear screen? I, I think it might have been slightly larger than a postcard, maybe. Uh, not a postcard, sorry. <laughs> postage stamp is what I meant to say. It was, a, yeah, it was bigger than a postage stamp, a large postage stamp. It was not great and the resolution wasn't great but we are talking about a camera from 2006 so yeah that's not crazy surprising uh it also got me into using aperture yeah uh, the the apple photo management tool lightroom wasn't even around at that point so it's not surprising that i got into aperture but aperture let me use raw files as if they were jpeg mm-hmm. and even though i didn't own a computer that was officially supported by Aperture for well, probably a good four years after that. It it worked well enough once I once I hacked it to bypass the checks and yeah, it just that was kind of what got me into it. And it was my my management tool until they discontinued it a couple of years ago. What was another camera of yours that was was notable, I guess? My my journey through digital cameras is a little bit slower than yours. Slower in the sense that I never really got into the more advanced cameras until much later. Until I started playing with your D50, actually. So my second camera was another point-and-shoot. It was a Polaroid something or other. It had a fixed focus lens, 1.3 megapixels. It did have live view, but it was terrible. It used two AA batteries. I think it used a compact flash card. And it was about the size of, I would say, three cassette tapes, like stuck, stacked on top of each other. It, was, it wasn't bad. And back in the day, the digital cameras didn't actually have video. So it was purely a stills camera. 
And I remember it actually had like a little toggle at the front of the lens to tell you whether, for you to tell the camera whether you wanted to focus on something close up or far away. So I think it was like macro was 30 centimeters away from the screen to 60 centimeters away from the screen. And then if you flip it to landscape or normal mode, it was anything from 1.3 meters away was sharp. Well, sharp-ish. Yeah, that that really wasn't worth mentioning, except that it was my first camera to use a CCD sensor. And back then, CMOS was considered low-quality sensors. Uh, You know, they were in webcams. And CCD was this newer technology which had better color and all that and better processing, I think. And so I was really excited when I got that. And it was definitely a step up from the pen cam. But after that, I jumped to another point and shoot, which was my graduation present to myself. It was a Canon, no, sorry, it was a Kodak. It was a Kodak D4900. It cost me $1,000. It was a big bulbous plasticky body, four megapixels, it had no manual functions except you could sh- um, except you could set the shutter speed. You could actually set it as long as sixteen seconds, which was pretty cool. It had a two time zoom, a thirty five to seventy. It ran on two AA batteries, which it chewed up almost immediately as soon as you turn on the back screen, which was a postage stamp size screen. I have no idea what the resolution was. Also took compact flash, but because I think it had a better lens and because Kodak did better things with their color, it was miles ahead of the Polaroid. And I had that for quite a while. See, that that reminds me, the Nikon D50 was, it was my second camera, but it was also the first camera I owned to have a rechargeable battery that it that it shipped in the box with. And that battery lasted forever. I, there were times when I would go a month without charging it because every charge would shoot like 5,000 photos. Wow. Maybe I'm exaggerating. It was really like 3,000, but... <laughs> that meant that I didn't ever worry about it. And it got that insane battery life because... You didn't use the back screen very much. There was no live view. And so if you put it down and left it on, within a couple of seconds, it was effectively off. Mm -hmm. And then you'd tap one button, instantly awake again. And that was great until one time when I went on holiday and I forgot to bring the charger. And I hadn't charged it in about a month. And so I had like a day's worth of shooting. And then I had to buy a new charger. And so I couldn't find a shop to sell one uh, that would sell one for probably another two days. And so I missed out on photos. And where was this? This was in the South Island. Mm -hmm. And so it was a trip I did with my stepdad, a different route to the one we did. And I ended up at this tiny little shop in Invercargill that sold photography things with a, a generic charger that did mean that I could then charge my batteries for that camera in a car, which was neat. Oh, that's cool. I don't think I ever did it, but I could, and that's what counts. I guess that was the benefit of 
the old cameras that used to take the AA batteries or the AAA batteries, in a pinch you could go to a shop and get one. And that's that's actually what I did a couple of times because the rechargeable batteries are a little bit better than regular alkaline batteries for digital cameras. I inevitably would still use them up. So what I ended up doing was I'd carry a pack of lithium AA batteries with me. So just in case all my rechargeables got used up, I still had a backup. And that kind of for a while meant that I actively looked at getting digital cameras with AA batteries because we've got rechargeable AA's, but in a pinch, you could just walk into a shop and get one. So I think I had, I've had quite a few digital cameras. I won't mention them all, but I think for a very long time, right up until oh, 2011 probably, all of my digital cameras had AA batteries. They all used AA batteries. Obviously, the larger ones had to use four at one time. Yeah, I remember those. But my first digital camera that actually used a proprietary rechargeable battery was probably the Canon SX50HS, which is a super zoom camera. That was pretty cool because it had a 50 times zoom. It was only 12 megapixels, but it had complete manual functions. It had RAW. It had a small sensor, but you kind of needed that to be able to get 50 times zoom out of a lens that's not the size of a house. But yeah, and I think playing with your D50, it got me interested in using manual modes. And so when I got the SX50HS, I was able to get to play with manual modes. But if I ever, you know, was unsure, I'd always flip back to auto. And that was that was fine. The, the next camera I want to talk about is the Sony NEX5. That was a cool camera. Yeah, I, I actually still have it. And why I, I, I love the NEX5 is that suddenly I had something that with an APS-C sensor that was, the body at least, was the size of a point-and-shoot. Now, obviously, you have a lens stuck to the front of it, and at least one of my lenses makes it look ridiculous as soon as you attach it. But suddenly I had this camera that was quite a lot more compact and easy to carry around, and thus I carried it around a bit more. It was 14 megapixels, so that was a nice bump. Mm -hmm. Uh, It still shot on SD, so the SD cards I'd bought from the D50 days were still usable. Mm -hmm. I had to buy bigger ones because bigger files. Yep. It was point-and-shoot-ish, but it took raw. Mm Mm-hmm. And unlike the D50, the next five's auto settings were actually really good. And so I started finding myself not using manual mode so much and trusting the the intelligent auto feature to get things right, knowing that I had raw as a way to recover. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that was a the, the the kind of big downside was that there was no EVF or mm-hmm. I think you could get an accessory EVF that cost more money than I could afford at the time. And you're using a electronic display, which was actually pretty decent and reasonably large. But that meant the batteries didn't last anywhere near as long as the D50 did. Yep. 
Although people, especially pros, love to complain about the battery life of Sony's cameras, personally, I find it quite workable. And even though I would typically carry an extra battery, the batteries are a half to a third the size of DSLR batteries. And possibly the weight as well. The weight is the is there as well. And so actually having an extra couple of them bothered me less because then I could put the bag down with the batteries in it and my camera was lighter and that's easier on my wrists and just overall fatigue. And the overall size of what you're having to bring with you is probably still smaller. And in fairness to the Sony batteries, even on days when I take hundreds of photos, it's relatively rare that I actually burn through more than one battery. And unless it wasn't charged to start with. Mm-hmm. I mean, if it's not charged to start with, then I'd always grab a second one just in case. Yep. But usually it, it did fine. I think part of the problem why pros or more advanced users complain about mirrorless cameras' batteries is because they're a little bit stuck in their ways with how they use their cameras. I find that because DSLRs, like you said, they don't need a screen to be on all the time to be operating. I think a lot of them have now developed the habit of just leaving it on. So it's, you know, quote unquote, ready whenever something appears in front of them that they want to shoot. But mirrorless cameras and just more advanced cameras, probably even point and shoot cameras now in general, are just so quick to start up. That's what I do with all my cameras. I take my shot. If I no longer need to take a picture, I just flip it off. And then it's never an issue. I've never felt that I missed a shot because I had to turn the camera on and wait for it to do something to before I can shoot anything. And what I going back to the NEX5, I think that was the first consumer camera that's mirrorless with an APS-C sensor. They may have been, I'm sure there's like, Likers that were considered mirrorless that came before that. But I think Sony did a really amazing thing where they brought mirrorless technology with a bigger sensor to the mass market. Yeah, and I really appreciate that. I mean, and the photos that I took with that still look good. Yeah, and I got to play with the NEX5 when we were in San Francisco because you had to work. So while you were working, I was just wandering around San Francisco. And like you said, the auto was so good. And because the lenses were far superior with compared to any point and shoot, just the photos and the dynamic range of the images were more than you could get for a similar size point and shoot. And, what, and another thing with San Francisco was... I used the 16mm pancake lens, and with that on, it was actually smaller than my Kodak 4900. Oh, wow. Which was this, like I said, this huge bulbous thing. Very cool. What would be the next camera that you'd like to talk about? The next camera after the next 5 that I bought was the RX100 Mark One, and then the Mark Two, And that was the, the camera with a... Uh, the Mark V that they're up to now is continues it really nicely. But the RX100 
brought a one-inch sensor to a point-and-shoot. Again, I think they were the first ones to do this. Yeah, it came along right after Nikon introduced its J1 series. Oh, okay. But those were interchangeable Those were an interchangeable lens with a one-inch sensor that were kind of panned. And I think because people were comparing it to the APS-C and Mm -hmm. finding it lacking. Whereas I was coming to the RX100 wanting something that would actually fit in a large pocket because it's not super skinny, but it's still pretty good. And for me, it was fabulous. It was a point and shoot, an actual point and shoot that took raw. And it still had Sony's really good intelligent auto that I liked from the NEX5. Mm-hmm. The initial version didn't have a flippy screen. It didn't have a you know, didn't have Wi-Fi. It didn't have anything like that. But it did have some zoom and a reasonably fast aperture at the wide end. The wide end. I think it was a 1.8 at the wide end. Yeah, it was it took good photos. It was 16 megapixel no that it was 20 megapixels oh wow <laughs> so yeah it was a it was a jump up from the uh, the nex5 event and that camera i mean i replaced it with the mark ii almost uh almost as soon as it came out because it that brought a a flippy screen and, and like, wi-fi maybe yeah i think i think it did i should have i should have notes the good thing is even though they made a second version they kept the battery the same, which meant that you didn't have to rebuy batteries. Yeah, and I did have two or three batteries and a and external chargers that I'd bought from Amazon. Amazon, yeah. And I think part of the reason why the Nikon J1 cameras were panned was because they were interchangeable lens cameras, so it was more geared towards advanced shooters. But what they tended to do was, with the very first version anyway, they they hid all the advanced functions like manual mode and changing your aperture and shutter, things that advanced people want to do. It, it became this weird combination of it's an interchangeable lens cameras for advanced users, but try and shoot it in auto as much as you can. And I think that's what kind of confused people who were interested in a smaller interchangeable lens camera. It was a new lens mount. Yes, that's right. And so there wasn't a lot of lenses available to it. And I think just they, they weren't very fast. And at that point, they just weren't very good. And so people latched on to the sensor as the problem. But it was just, it wasn't the problem, as Sony then demonstrated with the RX100. The RX100 also had like it had dials, like it had a a ring around the lens that you Mm -hmm. could uh, configure. So I had that set to control aperture, and then I had the camera on aperture priority like the entire time I owned it. Mm -hmm. That's what I prefer to shoot with anyway these days. So what's your next camera that you want to talk about? Uh, I'll probably mention my first DSLR is the Nikon D5300. I bought that... Probably five years ago now? No, probably about three years ago. And I bought that because I got to play with your D50 and was suddenly got more interested in 
DSLR photography and the flexibility of having different lenses in front of your camera. And I mistakenly thought that the D5300 could also use your D50 lenses, which meant that I didn't have to invest in lenses immediately. I found out later that by then they had removed the autofocus motor from the body to save space and money. And unfortunately, the only lens that I owned that had a an integrated motor was the one that had died. Yeah. So the remaining lenses were all, unfortunately, not, not... Well, you could use them, but you had no autofocus. And that's when I found out something that I didn't like with DSLRs, and that's if you're going to manual focus and if you're going to use the viewfinder, you kind of have to have good eyes, which I do not have. And I don't either. That's why I almost never manual focus. Yeah, so to me it would look right, but when I took the shot it was blurry as hell. Oh, well, I'm exaggerating, but it, it wasn't sharp. And it meant that I couldn't trust my eye to make sure that f- the focus was set correctly. I only could use the optical viewfinder for composition. And even then, I think because it was a cheaper entry or level DSLR, it didn't have as good an optical viewfinder and its coverage wasn't as good. So I found that, you know, things would get cut off or things would appear in my frame that I wasn't expecting, which meant that I had to crop. And unfortunately, and I think this is still a problem with Nikons, is that their live view is one of the slower ones in the DSLR world. They haven't really invested much in getting their live view autofocusing to work well. So it, I think when it's in live view, it completely uses contrast detection, which is what point and shoots do. And as a result, if you're in anything but perfect lighting, it would just do the backwards forwards hunting thing until it got something in focus. It reminds me of my favorite Sony feature. It's across more now, but and that was the focus peaking. Oh yes, and I think that was the the NEX five where I mm-hmm. first had that, and it was a real really changed how reliably I had focus because I could use manual focus or I don't know what they call it, but directed manual focus or something basically you you let it choose focus oh and then you can fine-tune the focus afterwards yep and so that meant i got photos that i just wouldn't have got in the past Mm -hmm. because i would never be confident that they were in focus and the really nice thing about the rx100 is it still had that yeah and it had it full time i find that other cameras that have peaking you either have well i think all of them except for sony only have peaking when you're in manual focus mode. If you're in autofocus, it's completely gone, which means that you can't double check. So that's a little frustrating. I think the the RX100s might have only had it if you're in the whatever they called that directed manual uh, directed manual. So it's partly auto. Yep. But whatever, as long as you can get auto and peaking. Uh, I don't care if you can fine-tune it if you want to afterwards. That's that's actually better anyway. <laughs> yeah. Sony just introduced a whole lot of technology into the camera space, which now I think the other camera manufacturers are trying to catch up. And that and that's great, because even 
even if you're not a Sony shooter, in the same way that Nikon and Canon were good for each other for mm-hmm. years, Sony is now good for everyone because even if they don't fill your needs, they don't typically do cameras with dual card slots. Mm-hmm. Uh, the batteries pros would like to be bigger, but then they do things like focus peaking and charging and power over micro USB. Yes. Never underestimate the usefulness of that, especially when you're traveling. Mirrorless with APS-C sensor. Uh, yeah, I, I, I like what they do. I mean, their sensors are used by Nikon and... I think they make sensors for everyone. I think I think Nikon's highest-end cameras use Nikon sensors, but everything else uses Sony. I know Fuji makes... Fuji sensors are made by Sony. Canons, I think, might be. And mo- most of the good phone sensors. Yes. So... I have one one more of my cameras, but we'll we'll do some more of yours, and that's the Sony RX One, and I mention it because it's it's a real oddity of a camera. It's it's a real specialty camera. It's super niche, and I don't know how I persuaded myself to buy it. It's a full frame point and shoot. Yeah, it's a. I think they've described it as a full-frame fixed-lens camera. Yeah, so the reason I call it point-and-shoot is that's kind of what I call all cameras where you can't change the 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 lens. lens. You can't change the lens. It's a fixed focal length. It's 35mm. It does drop down to f2, f1.8, something quite low. f2, I think. But it's really compact because a bunch of the lens can therefore be uh, inside the body it's full frame. It has dials for everything. Like it has a fixed, uh, has a manual or what's the word I'm looking for. You, you turn a ring for the aperture mm-hmm. and it's not by wire. It's actually. Yeah. It's, it's a proper aperture ring, yeah. a clicky one too. Yes. And I really like it. And it has, you know, rings for focus and, and it doesn't have. Does it have a flippy screen? I don't think so. No, it doesn't. So it's relatively basic, and it was really expensive. Doesn't have an EVF. Doesn't have an EVF. Doesn't have GPS. Uses the same battery as the RX1. Uh, sorry, the RX100, which was great because I had lots of those. The downside being that it probably doesn't give it the battery capacity that it ought to have. For such a large camera, I mean. And for the price. But as as weird as it is, because it was an F2 and because it was 35mm, it could get really good results, but you had to work hard. You had to... There's no zoom, so you have to move, and that's fine. And the limitations are empowering in a way because it forces you to try different things. Yeah, it It's funny because it's less advanced in some ways in that you can't change the lenses, but it's more advanced in other ways in that you need to be an advanced user to actually get what you want out of the camera. Not to say that you can't just put it into auto and get good results, but I think it it's more a challenge for advanced users. I don't think Sony sold a lot of them, and I don't think they expected to. But what I think really limited its appeal was it's not... I don't think anyone could have it as their only camera. 
anyone who's prepared to spend that much on a camera. I mean, it was three-ish thousand dollars for a camera with no interchangeable lenses. Yeah. But anyone who who was going to spend that amount of money probably had some reason to want better mm-hmm. quality and would probably be looking to have multiple lenses. And so they're probably going to end up with another camera anyway. However, the the kind of the flip side of it was that it was three-ish thousand dollars, but the lens on it, the equivalent lens for other bodies was in the same ballpark. So you're kind of getting a, a sensor and body attached to the back of the lens for free. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, it got me hooked on full frame. We'll talk about our current cameras in, in the next episode. I think the only camera that I have that is worth noting is Samsung's attempt at making a point-and-shoot camera that actually ran Android. So I didn't get the first version, but the first version was the Samsung Galaxy Camera. And so I got the Samsung Galaxy Camera 2, which I think improved the body style a little bit. There was no improvement in the zoom. It was, you would consider it a super zoom. It had a 20 times zoom. But yeah, it had this huge back screen. It had a four... 4.5 or 4.3 inch screen, touch screen. And in theory, it was exactly what I wanted. It was a point and shoot with manual controls. It had a usable zoom, so I could use it as my only holiday camera. It had a micro SD slot for expandable memory. It had Wi Fi, it had Bluetooth. You could browse the web on it if you wished, and I did for a little bit. And it would have been my ultimate camera because at that stage I was getting into Instagram, into Twitter. So you could take your pictures and as long as you had Wi-Fi, you could then post those same pictures. And they they made a version with cellular? Yes, the first version had cellular in it. And I think they kind of took it out because I think they found that not a lot of people were taking advantage of the cellular. In in fairness, the, when that was released, it was far less common to have data sharing mm-hmm. or inexpensive data sharing. And even now, when carriers like to charge 5 to $10 a month, you're probably not going to pay that for your camera. Yeah, I think that was, that was the main thing. People weren't actively getting another phone plan, well, effectively a phone plan, data plan, for their camera, which they're likely not going to have with them every day, not like a a tablet or a second phone. But unfortunately, even though having Android made using the camera a little bit better and having all those posting features, Samsung just crapped on the image quality side. They compressed the JPEGs aggressively and smoothed as well? Yeah, it's like they beauty-faced the hell out of everything anything from ISO 100. As a point and shoot with a small sensor, you're expecting noise to appear at all ISO levels. But they just tried to overcompensate by just noise reduction everywhere. And it just looked like watercolor paintings. Even in bright daylight, I was finding so aggressive noise reduction everywhere that the images, as soon as you weren't just looking at the whole image, it was just so visually apparent, 
which is a real shame because I think at that same time, I think they would have had the Galaxy S4. And unlike in the Galaxy camera, the S4 had much better camera imaging processes because even though they they did still apply very heavy-handed noise reduction, they seem to do it in a smarter way. Like it, it just, it's very ham-fisted is what I'm saying in their implementation of that, which is a real shame. I still have it, but I I can't really rely on it to take pictures that I want to keep. I really like the idea of having Android on the back of a camera. Nikon, I think, was the first one to think of it or try it anyway. It, it's a really interesting idea because I love the idea of being able to go to Instagram or Facebook directly from a camera with more reach in the terms of zoom or just configuration. And our phones are getting really good. And in a way, my iPhones or my series of iPhones have to have an honorable mention in my cameras, uh, camera history, because I take more photos with my phone than my regular full camera today. And I don't think you're alone in that. Totally. And I would love to, when I'm on holiday, be able to go straight from, straight on, like in the camera, go, okay, post this to Instagram. And we have these awkward ways of transferring by Wi-Fi or Bluetooth, I think Nikon Mm -hmm. might do. And that's okay, but it's just not, it's not as fluid. Yeah, it's like, you have to jump through several hoops, none of which are reliable to the extent that um, that you'd want to use them often. And also the interfaces, camera interfaces, just tend to not be as modern. I think that's changing now with more cameras getting touchscreens. I think camera manufacturers can learn a lot from how phone manufacturers have tackled the issue of playing with camera settings using a touchscreen. Yeah, and the the other little feature that is becoming more common, but that I've always wanted is GPS. Yes. Tagging. Uh, because on from our recent trip to New Zealand, I managed to accidentally flick off the setting for Google Maps that records everywhere I go, which is creepy, but whatever, I love it. It's, it's good on holiday, but I only have the first day. And so I've been going through and posting photos to Instagram and Facebook and Twitter over the last couple of weeks. And the way I've been figuring out where we were is by asking Google Maps for directions for the day that I knew we took, switching to satellite mode, and then zooming in on the route and crawling along it until I find the place that I took the photo. That's worked okay, but I've now got those in my Instagram copy of those images and and the Facebook version too. But the version in my photos library doesn't know where they were. And will I go back and tag them? Maybe now that I've shamed myself on on the podcast, but I doubt it. But we take such a, well, I take a high volume of images. So it's going to be quite tedious to do that after the fact. The cool thing is both you and I, We do also shoot with our respective phones. And I think for the most part, iPhone and Android cameras usually do take note of the GPS location. They should do. Yeah. And usually it's right. I think I've shot a couple in in our trip to New Zealand where it got the 
location a little bit off. But otherwise, yeah, it's I kind of have to remind myself now to if I'm going to take pictures with my regular camera to also maybe take a couple with the phone so that at the very least I have a GPS location that I can work off of. Anyway, I think we've talked for quite a bit. We haven't even finished. Yeah, we we will come back with a, another episode where we talk about the cameras we're using today. Update, I guess, on my my waffling last episode about, or the previous episode where I talked about potentially ordering a Galaxy S8. I actually did pre-order one, and bombshell yesterday I cancelled the order. If you want to find out why I cancelled it, send some feedback and maybe we'll talk about what we found disappointing about it in a new episode. And maybe when it comes out and we can actually see it in real life, we might actually change our minds. Sure. Okay, we have a website. It's twopats.live. If you're not already subscribed, although there's a few of you now, head on over to twopats.live, click on the subscribe link, and uh, add it to your Pocket Cast, Overcast, or iTunes collections. Find us on Twitter. I'm at the Patrick. And I'm at Limburger2001. Or find us on Instagram, same usernames. Yep. And uh, we'll be back soon. Oh, and leave a comment. We'd like to know what your first camera was and what you're shooting now. Find the feedback form on the website. Thank you. Bye.